So I was getting kind of pretty demoralized, as you can imagine. Also, my wife and I were gonna have a baby in six months. I always believed that when things got really tough, that I would figure something out. And like, yeah, I need to figure something out right now. Hello, and welcome to the Founder Shares podcast. We're so happy that you've chosen to spend some time with us. I'm your host, Trevor Schmidt. I'm an attorney at Hutchison, a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina. We work with founders and entrepreneurs in technology and life science companies, start up, operate, get funded, and exit. We are daily inspired by the people we work with and want a chance to share some of these stories with you, our listener. So whether you're already an entrepreneur, want to be one someday, or are just fascinated by the stories of how a business goes from idea to success, or not such a success. This podcast is for you. Today's guest is Joe Colopy, serial tech entrepreneur and investor. Joe is the co-founder of Jurassic Capital, a new venture capital fund which invests in tech companies with one to five million in yearly revenue. He's the publisher of Grepbeat, a digital publication that covers all things tech in the Triangle area of North Carolina. If you're not a subscriber, I highly recommend it. And he's also the co-founder of Bronto, which he started back in 2002, along with co-founder Chaz Felix, which they ended up selling to NetSuite for $200 million in 2016. You heard that right, $200 million. Joe got his career started off in 1999 working at Red Hat, which was a startup with 100 employees at the time. A year later, they had over 700 employees and had gone public. It was then that Joe realized that he could climb the corporate ladder he chose to take his life on a riskier path. So there are two parts. There's confidence and there's also just the realities of paying a mortgage or rent as well. And so one, I did make a little bit of money from the Red Hat IPO. Not tons, but enough when you're in your 20s to feel like I'm going to have my mortgage paid off for a little while. So that was really critical. Mm -hmm. The second thing is... My wife is a very understanding person and she was working and she had a mid-level job and we had decided and we had structured our life to be able to live on her salary. And we were able to do that. So God forbid, if nothing came out of it after a year or two, I felt I could go back and get a job and we wouldn't be on the streets. Joe never had to go back to get a job working for someone else. And part of that was because he and his wife knew how to live conservatively. Before Red Hat, they were in the Peace Corps together in Seychelles and learned that they didn't need much. In fact, it would be quite a while before Joe would take his first paycheck from Bronto. I think startups, especially as they grow, are a reflection of the personality of the founders. Mm -hmm. And Chaz Felix, who is the co-founder of Bronto, very much espoused those values as well. And so we're cheap, right? And we wanted to be very capital efficient because it gave us a lot of independence and control in terms of how we manage and grow the business. And so... After I left Red Hat, I didn't receive another paycheck for three years. Wow. And that was from Bronto. Yep. And for Chaz, I was probably a year and a half by the time he got involved. And so that's a long time. And the reality is we could have paid ourselves earlier something. Right. But when you're when you know that if you put a dollar in a business, it generates three mm. in a good way, you're kind of reluctant to spend the dollar in salary because I'd rather have three. Right. And then you do that again and again and it starts being some big numbers. And so we were pretty disciplined about uh, avoiding taking money for as long as possible until it just became a little silly right. not to. And we wanted to establish the discipline of paying ourselves some salary. But we always, I think we started off, we paid ourselves 
And we actually put ourselves on the payrolls $20,000 a year. And then every once in a while, Chaz and I were like, hey, let's bump that. And we bump it to 30. Right. And I think we did that until we we're several hundred thousand dollars a year. And this is on top of the ownership, right? right? When we got to be a very big company. But we're still always below market in terms of our roles. Um, and often I remember, I didn't really remember how much we would get paid. I asked Chas, like, how much are we getting paid these days? <laughs> because even though we were making more money, my wife and I were still leaning mean in mm -hmm. terms of how we live our lives. And so we didn't necessarily live to that income. And even today, right, we have the financial means to do a lot of things, but that doesn't necessarily correlate in terms of how we live our lives. Yeah. So again, a lot of interesting things to unpack there, but I want to take a step back and ask you, do you remember some of the ideas that didn't pan out? You said you, you coded some things and tried to put Well, most of my ideas don't pan out, <laughs> okay. right? So I would say two-thirds of my ideas don't pan out, but I, I try to kill them early without too much fanfare. So prior to Bronto, the project I was really working on was something called Database App. And the idea was hey, we're all storing information. The center of any new software on the web, software as a service, is a database, right? And so why don't I create an online application that lets people store things online and we'll have little modules to put information in through forms, take it out through reports, and then maybe do some other things. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of this generic idea. So this product, database app, was great in that it was a vehicle for me to learn how to program in Linux with MySQL and PHP, which were kind of the still popular tech stack, but definitely popular back then. And it was it was really valuable exercise. But the product and that exercise that I worked on for a year had one very big fatal flaw: is that no one wanted it, <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't. It was a generic idea, but it didn't have much customer application. It was just too horizontal of an idea. So, mm -hmm. so we got to the end of two thousand one, and by this time, I'd been not working for about a year and a half. So all the allure of working or doing whatever you're doing out of your slippers and doing the entrepreneurial journey had long wear it off. Mm -hmm. It was also the dot-com bus. So there weren't great communities like American Underground and uh, Raleigh Founded and Lodge Chapel Hill and all these other places that can aggregate and make you feel together. I was by myself in my house. So I was getting kind of pretty demoralized, as you can imagine. Also, my wife and I were going to have a baby in six months. I always believed that when things got really tough, that I would figure something out. And I'm like, yeah, I need to figure something out right now. <laughs> and so what I did is I took this scramble code product of database app, stripped it down and said, "There's, I want to just make it not just about technology. I want to figure out one customer use mm -hmm. and build it, like flip it. And I had this module, it was called email merge, which basically pulled information out of the database and kind of merged it into kick out emails. If you think about, oh, that winner's prize, what was the name of when they, uh, Ed McMahon would hand out? Publisher's Clearing Publisher's Clearing House, and they would publish all the different names and addresses using um, mail merge, right. you know? So it was like that for email. And suddenly I flipped it, and then I was like, okay, well, I need to rebrand this, and, and I need to cut out all this other stuff in database app. And I harked back to my days as a second grader when I loved dinosaurs and first grader. I called it Bronto Mail, 
Bronto, like the Brontosaurus, mm-hmm. my favorite dinosaur, and Mail, like M-A-I-L, and repackaged it, got the domain name in January, and away I went. And suddenly, one of my good friends at the time, Randall Gregg, he's like, oh, actually, you can find, I could use this. Okay. And he could use it for his local tech publication. I think it was called Triangle Tech Journal. And that was really the first time I had someone who genuinely wanted to use it, not just because they were nice to me. Right. And then we were able to take that relationship and he was able to get one of his buddies to use it for his email newsletter under a barter arrangement. And I was able to turn those barter arrangements into exposure and get some paying customers. At the same time, I teamed up with Chas Felix. He was actually also at Red Hat. He was coming off of that. I'm like, hey man, you're not doing anything. Why don't you come do this? And he's like, sure. He could collect unemployment at the same time, float his bills for a little while. And that's what we did. And then we reincorporate together as Bronto Mail Inc. Uh, in May, I think 15th, 2002. So that was the beginning. Okay. And so you found your your use case. You're starting to attract some yep. customers. You know, what are some of your, your favorite memories of those early days of the company? Either from when you've just got started or as it started to gain some traction? What do you remember fondly? I mean, there were so many funny stories from back in the day. We first started working out of my house. And when my oldest, I now have four, uh, Jimeno's on the way, uh, my wife rightfully said, you know, you guys need to get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) So we squatted in some space called Fusion Ventures, which is over in Brightleaf Square. Okay. My friend Randall Gregg helped set us up there. And it it was in the ashes of of a failed dot-com incubator that was no longer running. But there are a lot of quirky things about this office. Plus, it was only $100 a month. That was great. That is great. Payable to Randall, but whatever. (laughs) And he said, there's some key things like the phone system, for example. You can call out with the phone system, but you can't call in because it's leveraging the phone system from the people who are renting the space below us. They're okay with it, but don't mention it. (laughs) And we did that and we would use our cell phones. So there's a lot of hustle, leaning mean, those early days, which are very fun. I think- there's such a long, interesting journey in Bronto. And I think my fondest memories always were around the people. Mm-hmm. You know, hiring a great person, seeing them stay with us for a few years and become something interesting. And taking someone who might have been right out of school or had a you know, retail job doing something different, giving them a career in sales, or maybe they're right out of school and they become a software engineer. And next thing you know, five years later, they're still with us, taking a senior role. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of individual memories. But I think what was most rewarding were ones having to do with the people interaction and these really great, wonderful people that we hired over the years, which we fondly called Brontos. And and how did you attract the Brontos, the people that you wanted to work with? And how did you, I don't know, convince them to, you know, that this is the company that they wanted to work with? So in the early days, it really was about hiring part-time interns from UNC. Okay. So... 10 bucks an hour, 12 bucks an hour, $15 an hour. They're looking for jobs. Yeah. And so $15 an hour got it done back then. That's what we did then. And then we actually, our first marketing person was that way. Our first finance person was also an undergrad at UNC intern. I think our first support person, Brittany, she also was like that as well. She Mm -hmm. was coming out of the math department there. And then we're able to convert some of those people into full-time people. So, for example, Brittany Wallace was our first part-time support associate. She graduated, and we were able to hire full-time mm-hmm. for not enough money, but we were we didn't have anything. Yep. We you know we had our people for very little, and they were willing to come on for a little while. 
We hired Eric Boggs, now of local Rev Boss fame. I think he had a job a year out of school. And we're like, we can't offer you much, but this is what we got. And he was young and hungry and sharp. And so he's willing to jump into it. So. Now, do you feel in those early days, are these people buying into an idea? Are they buying into the people that they're working with? I mean, does a lot have to do with your personality and Chaz's personality and it's a good group to work with? Or did they have a vision of what the company could be? When you're hiring 22-year-olds and 21-year-olds and 23-year-olds, it is partially just a job with that's fun. Okay. I think if we had to sell a greater vision and we're trying to hire 40-year-olds, we would have had a really tough time because it was we were sharp and we were very driven, but we were very, very scrappy. Mm-hmm. Um, we had no benefits. Yeah, the office was just kind of very loose. We were working off of we bought old tables from Duke Surplus store, like not really the nicest accommodations. Right. So I think because we were able to start organically with a bottom-up approach and start with interns in school mm-hmm. and then shift to recent grads and with time hire people a few years out. And as a business got more revenue and could afford more, that level of person we hired seemed to match our level of maturity. And as we got further, we also got to be more sophisticated leaders mm-hmm. and were able to articulate our mission better. So I think as we got further on, we we did not pay top dollar. We we tried to pay competitive salaries, but it was, Chaz and I were very, very involved with the company culture. And we like to think it was a great company culture and it was a very engaged company culture. And so people bought into that. Mm-hmm. They could pick up on the enthusiasm and the excitement and how much we're into it. And once we started hiring people that are a little bit further along in the profession, they, it's, it was infectious. They wanted to be part of it. As we got bigger, we're also, we focus a lot on our office as a representation of that, be very creative and engaging. Mm-hmm. We pretty much grew up in American Tobacco once we moved out of this Fusion Ventures place <laughs> and had an office that was, embodied, I think, what American Tobacco Campus wanted was a very creative software company that was doing great, was very professional, but was kind of fun and sharp and smart, our kind of own little local Google. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. And that as we got bigger and we had people sing the praises of how much they loved it to work at Bronto, it made it much easier to get more people who want to be part of it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And is there something in your mind that stands out that you would do differently? kind of in those early days of the company, you know, mistakes that were made or just you wish you'd taken it a different direction? So if I go back to what I know now, right? I know I know a lot. I didn't know so much then. So by bootstrapping the business, it allowed us to go at the pace of our learning and not get too far ahead of ourselves. What I know now, I kind of know how things are going to play out. And so we could have been more aggressive in our growth and I would have not ruled out funding because I would have known how to manage it and I know how to deploy it in a very efficient way. Right. But at the time, I didn't know those things. And I actually think most early stage founders don't know those things because you have to go through it. But I think we were so lean and mean and sometimes I think it was too much. Like I remember in 2003, it was 2003, 2004, you know, we we're probably making 170K a year. I think that's those are our run rate. And we had something like 30% profit. Okay, that's great, but as a growth startup, that's bad. We really should have had 5% profit or 3% profit because we could have redeployed that into sales or hiring a full-time engineer earlier because we had to duct tape a lot of things. Mm. 
And it was very stressful and probably curb growth. So I think we could have, by oddly enough, not being as lean mean early on, we could have accelerated growth a little bit. And, you know, in some cases, we burn out some really good people. Mm -hmm. And so I think early on, we could have been a little bit smarter than that. We had this big, also in 2006, so we're probably about $5 million business. We had this big incident called the May Massacre. I think it was May 2006, where we were completely rewriting the product, not okay. incrementally, just the whole thing. And we pushed really hard, and the product ended up coming out just as a complete disaster. It didn't work. It didn't work. had tons of problems. And we ended up giving every all our customers a free month. Mm. We thought everyone was going to quit. It was so stressful. And at the end of the day, we lost very few customers. We lost very few employees. We did lose some yep. once we got through that. But I think the the leadership lesson there was I was kind of pushing to get something done out mm. the door, but I wasn't necessarily doing a good job of listening to really the feedback from the team of like, yeah, we can push it out there, but it's going to be a disaster. And it was yeah. a disaster. And that really was the moment also that I think Chaz and I realized this is real. Hmm. This moved from like, hey, we've got some like young kids and we're making these things or it's kind of fun and we're kind of doing it to, you know, we had people who had families and they're married and they may have a, a child. And so people were starting to really rely on this. And those are employees and then customers. They were very upset. They're really trying to run their business, right. our product. So I think having that wake up call then versus three years later was actually a lifesaver because it forces us to mature quickly and kind of go through that awkward teenage year before the stakes got really, really high. Mm -hmm. And we made a lot of changes and we fundamentally looked at the business and kind of, I would say, took it more seriously from that point onward. So you know, we tried to learn from our mistakes. Well, I thought it was good. Yeah. <laughs> so then how did the exit come about? If you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So we sold to NetSuite in, we announced the acquisition in April, 2015. Okay. And we actually closed the acquisition June, 2015. So there's always a few months in between because there's a, we are international operation by then. There are a lot of details that have to be worked out there. But how that came about was in the beginning of 2014. And for the last couple of years, I, as a bootstrap company, I, Chaz and I realized, hey, you know, we, we're too insular. We, we need to get our name out there more in the investment community, in the partner community, because we're going to run into hurdles if we just stay insular mm -hmm. in our approach to things. So I, we started networking more, and we would go out to uh, technology investment conferences in San Francisco, and we were going out to one called the Pacific Crest Investment Conference that we had been to before in, I think, February 2014. And as part of that, I've learned something about sales. It's like, hey, if you're going to go out somewhere, don't just like hang out. Try to arrange a lot of other meetings with right. key people. And so I did that. And one of the meetings I tried to arrange was with NetSuite. Mm -hmm. They were in San Mateo, which was in Sarp, far from San Francisco. And they recently hired this fellow, Andy Lloyd, to be their new general manager. And they were building up this commerce division. Bronto had evolved from a very simple email marketing for small business tool to really focus on only retailers and do what we call commerce marketing automation. So connecting with NetSuite made a lot of sense. Yep. I reached out to Andy and said, hey, we should grab coffee. And he was like, uh, maybe, okay, I'm not sure. 
And then coincidentally, I had an investment banker who was prospecting with me the last couple of years and he was very friendly. And I actually is one of the few that I actually enjoyed talking to Peter Falvey. And he, and I mentioned offhand, like, yeah, I'm actually going to the Pacific Crest Conference out in San Francisco. And then I might go grab coffee with the NetSuite guy, but I'm not really sure he's going to do it. He's like, oh, interesting. One of the things I'd done, I had sold the business to NetSuite. Let me make a call and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So he calls, uh, so Peter's based in Boston. He calls this other investment banker in Boston named Giles, I can't remember his last name, that represented NetSuite in all their acquisitions. And Peter and Giles were smart enough to know that, hey, there could be something there. And this is what Peter does. He tries to get companies bought and sold. So next thing I know, he calls back. He's like, okay, oh, this little coffee maybe happened meeting. Yeah, let's do it at the NetSuite office. (laughs) And uh, yeah, come talk to us. And they start getting a whiff. It's like, this might be more than coffee. This is more than just the This is more than coffee. coffee. And so I kind of go over there and I was like, you know, I better be a little bit more prepared for this. And I go over and I go into a conference room and they're all there. And they're like, can we see a demo of your product? And I'm like, okay, let's do this. And fortunately I had coded the first version of Pronto Mm -hmm. and I had oversaw for many years the product engineering team. So I was familiar still with the product. And even though I didn't demo it every day, like I knew how it worked. And and it's funny they said that because afterwards they're like, you did a great job, really appreciate it. We're going to follow up and ask you more questions later and have additional meetings. And they're like, we're really impressed that you can demo your own product. Oh, wow. And I'm like, really? It's like, you would be surprised. At this <laughs> level, how many tech leaders can't demo their own product? Yeah. And so it got dragged out a little bit, but that led to a meeting with all the C-level people at NetSuite in August. And then a few months later, that led to a letter LOI, a letter of intent. And then eventually went through the due diligence, which is the process you go before you're acquired to make sure everything's legit, and then led to um, a purchase. So, it, and it made sense for us. I, I think a few notable things. I think a lot of acquisitions don't take that long. Okay. Yeah. But in our case, we weren't looking to be bought. We're executing our business. We're mm-hmm. doing great. I mean, we're still growing 35% on a big number. We had, by that time, international operations in Sydney, Australia, and London, and we had small offices in New York and LA. So we were like going. At the same time, I think as CEO, I recognize that for us to become a public company, you know, we we're at $40 million. We, we probably have to get to like, maybe at the time we're a little less than 40, we probably have to get to a little over a hundred million. We, we are going to have to do something. Mm-hmm. We're probably going to have to take a big round of funding or partner with someone big to, to continue the momentum to do what we're doing. And we wanted to stay a high-growth company because by being a high-growth company, we continue working with great people. Yeah. A lot of great people don't want to work for not high-growth companies. So it was a long courtship. It was one where we weren't looking to be sold, and that's what they say is the best companies are bought, not sold, yep. right? And we NetSuite was the right size, right? So they're about 12, 15 times our size. So they were bigger enough to write the check, to right. do it. But they weren't so big that we thought we would get lost in some endless machine or we'd be stripped for parts. We would be our own division. Mm-hmm. So organizationally, it, it seemed to make sense. We'd have the right level of independence to continue to do what we're doing while they could still pull it off. Right. 
Now, I had heard from another retelling of the Bronto story that the deal almost kind of died at the, on the vine, that there was like this yeah. last minute kind of struggle. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that experience was like? Sure. So you'll appreciate this. So we had from the legal world. So NetSuite was represented by Goodwin Proctor out in Silicon Valley. Yep. Scott Ulrich was our general counsel at the time. He had previously been general counsel at, at Channel Visor. He recommended that we work with Cooley, which is a, a, a large, I'm sure everything law firm, but particularly good at tech. And we worked with a partner out, uh, out of the San Francisco office. It was kind of good to be in their same backyard. Sure. We were kind of, after months, hashing things out, hashing things out. And NetSuite had purchased a lot of companies, but they all been small. They all been value buys. And we were, I don't know, at least four or five times bigger than their previously large acquisition. And so we had this meeting, and I can't think it might have been in February 2015, where we're going to meet out. We were having struggling getting through these last legal things. Mm -hmm. Like, well, let's just do it in person, hash it out. So we go meet in the Cooley San Francisco office in this beautiful boardroom that's looking out on some amazing street. And I remember I was, uh, <laughs> it was Chaz was there, and Will Sendel, our CFO, was there. And we're, we're waiting for them to come in. We're going to be on one side of the table. We're going to spend all day, no matter what it takes, to hash it out. Right. And the first thing I do is like, okay, here's our strategy. And I go to the other side of the table, and I lower all their adjustable chairs. <laughs> and I hire us. So when we go in, I'm like, this will be, this is such a sign for me. I was like, yeah, this will intimidate them. Of course, they all sit down. They think it's kind of weird, and they adjust their chairs instantly. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> that's our move. We're screwed. And so then they started going through all this legalese, which I kind of half understood. Mm -hmm. But- a lot of founders, they focus on the price, but it really is about everything else that matters because these are all the clawbacks and what counts and what doesn't count. And they really can affect the purchase price. What you start with and what you end up with are going to be two very different things. So we're paying these lawyers a lot of money for a reason yeah. and they're earning their keep. But it got hung up on two, what I, it would seem to me very arcane legal issues, but very, very important right. ones. And it got to a point toward the end of the day where we separate in different rooms and I came back and I had to say what our position is. And it's kind of like, this is what it is. Take or leave it. And they're like, we can't do that. And then everyone walked away and then everyone's like, I think in their own minds, like what the F just happened? Right. We've been working on this deal for so long. I mean, I don't think everyone's just processing of like, what, what's going on? Right. But no one was willing to move. And I remember Chaz, Will and I we were like, yeah, afterwards, we're like, okay, we just need to get a drink. We go to the hotel because it's like five or six at night that time. And of course, my my attitude, as I've been described, fiercely independent, I'm like, ah, F those people. <laughs> like, whatever. We don't need we're them. This, yeah, we don't need them. We're going to do something else. And I think we concluded that the deal was dead, but it wasn't dead, dead. And Will, and we got a little, not that anyone got emotional. But we got a little too fixed in our positions. Yeah. And so Will, the next day, he went out to San Mateo, their office, and talked to their CFO. And I think everyone's in shocked and annoyed. And he was able to like, okay, we're not as dead as we think it is. Right. You know? And he was able to like get us back to the table. And I, I forget exactly how, but we were able to find middle ground on those things. And we're like, great, we're back on. And well, that was only, that was not long before we announced that deal. And we had done a lot of work. Well, it sounded like it was right at the goal line. It was right, right at the goal line. It was kind of crazy. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's how it is. I mean, I'm sure you see it all the time, but 
the biggest thing that kills deals is time, mm-hmm. right? Things dragging out, and this had dragged out a lot. And deals die all the time. And often it's just personality conflicts yep. or egos or whatever. And and they also happen for those reasons too. You know, to, to, to talk about egos, when they originally put an offer, the CEO I think left me a message on what they're going to buy Bronto for, what they're going to offer. They first offered $100 million, and that, which is insulting. And it was over voicemail. And I, I later communicated professionals like, listen, kind of this has been a waste of time. Right. Like you're clearly trying to manipulate the situation. And I was professional about it, but what they, I think they realized, but didn't quite realize is this is a business between Chaz and I, we and all of it. There's right. no outside investors. So if we wake up one day, particularly me as the majority investor, and I said, I just don't want to do this. It ends. Yeah. There's no pressure for any board member who's like, oh, I really want to get that Corvette. No, it just ends. Yeah. That's it. And that was a very unfamiliar space for most acquirers. I was going to say, it has to be unusual for them because that's yeah. not what they see. Yeah. And I'm motivated by a whole bunch of things. So that pushback. And then they quickly came back and said, no, 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 no. We didn't mean to tell you that. Like two days later, the investment banker comes like, no, Giles, we didn't mean to tell you that. Uh, that was supposed to get out. It really was 150. I'm like, okay, well, one, I completely believe you, but right. whatever. I was like, hey, thank you very much. That's respectable, but that's, you know, from the beginning, I said, we're not going to look at anything. Like it, it, it really needs to be closer to 200, you know, and just, yeah, just, just what it is. And thank you. Right. I, you know, it was very respectful. In fact, I remember I was driving uh, with my f- family. So at the time, my kids were even younger. So they're probably all screaming and doing whatever. And I'm trying to like merge on some highway and I'm trying to take this call at the same time and be respectful and say, hey, listen, I'll think about it. I already knew my answer, but I'll think about it. So I went on this camp out with friends and my family and their families. And I think a number of folks there noticed me like dazing off into the fire, think that I'm either like high as a kite or whatever. And I was like, I don't think they realized what I was really contending with. Right. And you know, how am I going to tell this guy that like, we're just not going to do this. But I came back the next morning and said, and told him, hey, thank you very much. We're not going to do this. And then the next day they're like, fine, 200. You know, so like at some level- it sounds crazy as much as there are people who go through lots of spreadsheets to figure out the perfect answer and they justify it at the end of the day, it's what a CEO wants to do mm-hmm. and can they justify it to their board? Yep. And it just comes down personality and they liked us and we, you know, it seemed like a good fit. And the reality is it is an imperfect market. If you want a startup that looks as this, as this tech stack, that's this size, you don't just dial up and order like a pizza. It's like you're actually limited to a certain set of companies and they actually have to want to do it. Right. And that is really, really hard to find, right? And so I think he realized the value of having it was better than not. And he's like, Karen, let's just do it. Yep, your value is whatever somebody will pay for, right? Yeah, whatever (laughs) someone's got to pay. And then today, you know, maybe a year ago's market, maybe it would have been twice or three times that. And and maybe 10 years earlier, it would have been half that, right? So it's just kind of how it goes. Yeah. yeah, so it's kind of funny. There's a lot of, in terms of get making things happen and closing deal, it's it's a lot more about the human emotion than it is in terms of the numbers on spreadsheet. I think a lot of people sometimes don't realize how much that personality plays <laughs> into it. It's scary. Yeah. It's scary. I mean, I think I've negotiated things at like thrift sales, you know, harder than how it worked here. Now, I do want to save some time to talk about Jurassic Capital because you yeah. didn't just, you know, sell Bronto and ride off into yep. the sunset. You started a fund now. So what prompted that? Why, why didn't you just kind of take the easy road and just go off and 
do something. Uh, well, I should say I shouldn't say do something fun because maybe this is fun. Yeah, it's fun. So the transaction closed in June 2015. Chaz and I stayed until April 2016. Okay, almost a year, and then I pretty much took the rest of 2016 off. And the beginning of 2017, I started something called Copy Ventures, mm-hmm. which is really the LLC for my family office to do whatever I want to do. And I've experimented with things, right? A lot of some things worked, some things didn't work. One of the things I started experimenting with was uh, Gretby yep. in the summer of 2018. I stumbled on Pete McIntyre uh, to be the editor there. And he's still with us doing that for four years. The other thing was I always felt in growing Bronto, there is like some gaps in the funding market where we had a lot of people doing angel funding. But what would happen, particularly in the bootstrap world, is and these would be peers of mine at Bronto, they would get to a few million dollars in revenue and they would kind of just top out. And Bronto was just like them, except it wasn't. Mm-hmm. We kept on growing. And it wasn't because of funding. None of us had funding. It wasn't because of market, because we're all in the same market. And we all evolved and twist and t- turn different ways. So what? why? And it really comes down to, you know, Chaz and I were different type of founders, but maybe we had some things some of these other folks didn't. But some of those people were pretty good people and very talented. So maybe an investor, a cap provider could fill in some of those gaps and help what would be like a one, two, $3 million a year revenue company become a 10, 20, $30 million a year company. And so I always kind of, that kind of kept with me. Yeah, I always have things I'm thinking about. One of them was like, you know, there really needs to be like this approach to what we call early growth equity, where we invest in companies that are doing a few million dollars in, in the region and then how do we get them to like $10 million in recurring revenue? Because at that time, or now, especially even more, there's a very, very rich investment growth equity market at that size. And right. maybe even a little bit lower now. So if we can just help bridge that gap, we can take things that would be nothing or no one would remember to something that people definitely remember and have a huge impact in the area. At the same time, we had a, a Bronto reunion in like June 2019 over at the Unscripted Hotel. We had a few hundred people came back and it was as raucous as one of our early Bronto parties and people had a great time. And I reconnected with people. And one of the people I reconnected with was Kevin Mosley. So Kevin Mosley used to work for us at Bronto, more so with Chaz, doing financial planning analysis. So he really helped us figure out how to scale. Mm -hmm. And he worked for our CFO. And then after Bronto, he continued with part of NetSuite. And then as you know, the Bronto NetSuite was part of Oracle. He continued to do that. And then he went to another software company. We reconnected. And it's like, hey, listen, here's some of the things I'm thinking about. He's like, ooh, this is really interesting. It's like, you know, you actually would have a perfect background for this early growth equity play because you're used to taking small software companies and figuring out how to scale. It's not nothing, mm-hmm. but they're like doing a few million dollars in revenue maybe a little more and like getting them to be bigger. And they need a certain playbook, operational playbook to make that happen. You're used to implementing that in several places. And you're in a place in your life and you're young enough and have a hustle add to enough to want to do something crazy. It's like, let's try this. And we said, yeah, let's do it. And so in September, 2019, somewhere in there, he joined, we named it Jurassic Capital to focus on this thesis. And so far we've made three pretty big equity investments. We've did one small debt investment and we started off with just what are called SPVs. So special purpose vehicles. So we just raised money for a transaction 
And then at the beginning of this year, we started to raise a, a proper fund. Okay. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it kind of leads into that next question because I, I think as a capital fund, I think of kind of three buckets. You have to attract investors, yep. you have deal flow, and then you have kind of working with your portfolio companies. Yep. How do you think about or how do you prioritize your time kind of at Jurassic amongst those three or do you kind of break it up amongst the, the partners there? Yeah, so our team's a little bit bigger now, okay. right? So Kevin and I are kind of the general partners. So we're the ones like on the hook, a hook, mm -hmm. you know, for, mm -hmm. for doing this. In the spring, we hired Chrissy Witte to be an associate to augment our efforts. She had spent a number of years at JP Morgan in their innovation group before that. And she was an undergraduate at King Flagler before that. So she really helps us tremendously. We have what's called the operating partner, Chas Felix, my co-founder from Bronto. So he helps us on a part-time basis. Okay. And through that, we do all those things that you mentioned. I would say from a deal flow perspective, we actually get a lot of inbound because we have a very differentiated story. I'm kind of out there as a successful bootstrap entrepreneur. Yeah. That helps us. And I think Chrissy is really the one who's kind of managing the beginnings of that. And then as it gets more serious, Kevin gets involved. And as it gets really, really close, I get involved. So we have a, a, a funnel mm -hmm. there of sorts. When it comes to working with the companies, that is, that used to be a lot of me and Kevin, uh, and it's probably more so Kevin, but now Chaz is very involved with that. And we soon are, are launching a whole operating advisor group of people to help us do more there. So we're all involved, but we're all kind of involved in different ways. Okay. Right. And then from the investor perspective, I am the anchor of the fund, right? So I'm a put my money where my mouth is kind of person. And we are newer at that. And so we've all been involved with that. I would say I'm starting to get more involved in that than maybe some of the other folks. So I think we're kind of separating a little bit. I think we're seeing Chaz is getting more involved working with the company compared to he's not as involved with other things. Kevin's involved in everything. Chrissy's a little bit more involved in like working through the deal flow. And I'm a little bit more involved in the fundraising, but we're, it's small firm. So we're still doing all of everything. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And, you know, a lot of our listeners kind of wonder, you know, what can I do to help stand out when I pitch to an investor or what are some red flags that, you know, might turn an investor off of showing some interest in my company? Do you have any feedback or guidance that a young company might think of as they're thinking about pitching to investors? Sure. It is a courtship and is a match. So all investors don't invest in all things. Uh, and it goes back and forth. So I was pinged today, uh, entrepreneur I with a startup they just started. And uh, I said, hey, this is really interesting, but I want to pass on meeting, but maybe you should talk to so-and-so. And the person very wisely came back and said, hey, you know, what can I do better? Is there something that I should have said? And I said, no, I I'm actually just not actively angel investing, right? It's nothing <laughs> about you. It's all about me. So I think just making sure knowing where the investor is. Right. At Jurassic, we get a lot of random inquiries. We're very clear on our thesis. We focus on B2B software companies in the Southeast doing between one and five million in recurring revenue, lightly capitalized. So you if you're B2C, that. if you're in Oregon, it's just not going to make sense, right? right? So, so I think you first have to kind of realize that investors invest in different things and you need to be aligned with that. And also you need to pitch your story to that. So th that's the one thing. Second thing is, I don't just get the emails like, okay, let's do it, right? I mean, I'm not buying, you know, like something like a buck pen from Costco, right? right you know, right. it's like, so there's a little bit of a relationship. So there is a little bit has to be more of a soft sell. All our investments, you know, we've gotten to know them 
through maybe a year before. It doesn't have to be that way, yep. but it tends to be through networking because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we're risk mitigators. So if we don't know you, we can get to know you, but we're also trying to mitigate risk mm -hmm. of random things. And as a Jurassic, we are very involved. Investors are different. We are all into it. We are here to operationally help build your business to get to the next stage. And if it's just kind of dumb money, as they say, we're not a good fit. Yep. It can be a good fit for someone else. And that's great. That's just not what we do. Yeah. And that tends to get sorted out in the initial conversations. Too. Again, it's so important to know who you're talking to and what yeah, it is. Both sides want. Exactly. So, you know, we are the Founder Shares podcast. And so I like to ask all of our guests, you know, if somebody was a young founder and were thinking about starting a company or already have a company, what's one piece of advice that you would want to give them? I think most young founders or founders try to raise capital too soon. They'd be better focus more on the traction than the story. Investors always want to invest in traction. Trying to pitch a story which I think is kind of misrepresented out there in the press. Like, I want to hear this magical pitch, and then we'll get into it. I think it doesn't help the entrepreneurs. Focus on building your business. Get the customers. Be lean, mean. That's what I'm attracted to. That's mm -hmm. what most other investors are attracted to, more than the idea. That's great. I appreciate it. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time out today, and I appreciate your insights and sharing your experiences with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Wow, what an amazing story. As a reminder, for all your tech news, be sure to subscribe to GrepBeat by visiting grepbeat.com. That's G-R-E-P-B-A-T.com. If you're a founder or business owner and need legal advice, we'd love to hear from you. You can start by visiting our website at hutchlaw.com. That's H-U-T-C-H-L-A-W.com. We have the capacity to help you out with just about any legal need your company may be facing. We're passionate about the innovation economy and ready to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Trevor Schmidt, and we'll talk to you next time on the Founder Shares Podcast. <laughs>